And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, being the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus, in about as Jesus a way possible, tells him a story. A story probably most of you have heard, or at least have been alluded to, a story about a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And if you know anything about the area, you know it's about 17 miles of, of trail in which drops 3,400 feet. It's dusty, it's rocky, it's windy. It is a difficult road. And many times robbers would like to hide out on this road waiting just to jump someone that walks by. It was risky for this man to go alone. Just kind of like we all know it's risky to go drive up in LA traffic. But if you take off at Friday at 4, 4 p.m. in the afternoon, man, you might die. And so this man, as he's traveling down to Jericho from Jerusalem, he gets jumped. Robbers come and they, they beat him. They take everything that he has and they leave him for dead. Then all of a sudden, oh my God goodness, a priest walks by. This is like sent from God, the man to bring the people back into communion with God. Of course, he's going to help him. And as he sees the man on the side of the road, he, he doesn't want to get his clothes dirty. He's got places to be. And he just steps to the other side of the road and keeps on going. And then a Levite, one of the assistants to the priest comes. And of course, he's going to help his fellow Israelite. And as he comes up on the man, he, he probably starts to think how he's still alive. I, the robbers might be close. I'm at risk here. And so he happens to just go around the man and keep going. And then the most unlikely hero shows up, a Samaritan. Now, Jews and Samaritans, they, they don't mix. Israelites thought of Samaritans as kind of a, a half-breed, like um, someone from an uh, ancestral relationship, someone perfect for the Jerry Springer show. And so they didn't talk to them. They went out of their way to avoid them. And so the Samaritan walks up and sees this Israelite beaten half to death but still alive and he gets down and he takes out his oil and his wine and he starts to clean his wounds. He takes his own clothes and starts to rip them to bandage the wounds. He, he picks up the man and places him on his own donkey, which now means he's going to walk. He gives him his own food. He takes him to the closest hotel and he pays for an overnight stay and stays up the entire night taking care of this man who almost lost his life. And then the next day he pays the innkeeper to continue to take care of him and pays in advance and promises to then pay the remainder when he returns. After telling this story, Jesus looks at the lawyer that asked the question <clears throat> and he says, so who was the neighbor to the beaten man? And the man, understanding the story but not really getting 
the story, can't even say the Samaritan's name. He says, the one who took care of him. And Jesus says, now go and do likewise. And so as we start this series in real love, that is the question we are asking, is how do we be better neighbors? How do we love our neighbors like we love ourselves? And we're, we're gonna be talking about some of the relationships that cause tension, causes frictions in, in our life. Not, not your dog who thinks you do, everything you do is great and perfect and loves to see you every time. Right, these are the relationships that, that make us squirm, that cause us angst. And so today, we're gonna to be asking that question, how do we be a neighbor to those we disagree with? How do we love our neighbors with whom we disagree? So before we get started, we need to ask the question, who is this? Who are we talking about? The answer is pretty simple. Everyone. We are all conditioned to disagree. When you popped out of your mother's womb, you disagreed with how the doctor treated you that day. After that, you disagreed with your parents almost every day following. And then if it wasn't your parents, you disagreed with your siblings growing up. Unless you're one of those people that are scarred because you're an only child and you're conditioned to think that you're always right all the time. And then it was the neighborhood kids or your peers at school. And then it was the teacher in which you didn't agree on the grade in which you received the test, the grade you got on the test. And then as you continued to grow up, you, you met the person that told you you did everything right. It was beautiful in your eyes and they thought very highly of you. And so you married them just to continue to disagree with them. And then you, you continue to, to figure that out. And because there's not enough people on the face of the globe to disagree with, you bring children into the world. Right? And that, that's how the story goes. We are conditioned to disagree. But then when we look at society at large, does it get any better? No. If anything, it gets worse. It's whoever can shout the loudest, type the sharpest 140 characters, whoever can throw the most shade at the other person, at their opponent, they win. We live in the information age, yet we're not really informed about other perspectives. We really just tailor the information which we take in just to reaffirm our beliefs. I mean, we curate the people that we surround ourselves with. I have been in conversations with people who would consider themselves on the conservative side and the liberal side, and I've heard both say, you know what, I can't stand being with other conservatives. I can't stand being with other liberals because I just don't like how they think in anything that comes out of their mouth. We all do this. And as a nation, we've even changed the definition of tolerance. Instead of just being understanding and respecting the views and opinions of other people, now either you affirm every other view or you are a hater. And we are more divided than ever and even less able to talk to one another. A few years ago, about three months before the last election, which, surprise, we're in election season again. Woohoo! 60 Minutes interviewed a pollster, a gentleman named Frank Luntz, and he's been doing this for decades. 
And he gathers people from different points of view and perspectives, and he, and he just interviews them just to kind of see just the trends that are going in our nation. And in this interview, it was fascinating to me. He said, I have never seen anything like this in the history of my history of polling people. Within two minutes of getting a group together and getting them talking, they are already arguing. Within five minutes, I've lost all control because they're shouting over each other. I mean, what just a picture of how the dialogue of our nation as a society as a whole. That we are talking more, listening less, and more frustrated than ever. The tragedy in all this for me is I think sometimes we as a church, we get sucked into this. Right? Uh, from the outside perspective, sometimes we're thought of as Christians more as those people holding the signs, condemning people to hell than the suffering servant in which we follow and worship. Right? We're known more for what we're against than what we're for, which I think is tragic because what we're for is so much greater than what we're against. I even made a list because it's, it's so long. So here's just a few of them. We're for life and human flourishing. We're for human value from womb to tomb. We're for redemption, reconciliation. All people are image bearers of God. We're for grace, hope, joy, peace, philanthropy, charity, service, social justice, love, intimacy, relationship, friendship. We're pro-fun. How many of you saw the VBS video from a few weeks ago of all those kids having the time of their lives? How many of you heard the, the stories from Hume Lake, from our youth coming down off the mountain? We love to have fun. We're pro-food. How many of you are already thinking about your donuts you're going to get after service? We're pro-sex. Do you know studies have been done that... Religious married people, this is across all demographics, have more sex than anyone else, you animals. <laughs> what we're for is so much greater than what we're, what we're against. But see, don't get down about the state of our, our dialogue today. If anything, this is an amazing opportunity. I see it as an amazing opportunity because this includes all of us, even if you are more on the passive-aggressive side or just flat-aggressive. Even if you avoid conflict or you just revel in conflict. The way that Jesus calls us to disagree, I believe, is a great opportunity for all of us in how to approach these situations. Because Christ calls us to be salt and light. And how we disagree, we'll be able to shine like the stars in the sky. Uh, before we get into it, I, I think a great example how we've seen how to, to show Christ and how we disagree is how much of our leadership went about the building program, right? It took longer than we want. It cost more than we want. We had great opposition, but due to a lot of our church leadership and our head engineer, Gigi Colhagen, all of those uh, conversations, and they, they answered questions and questions and more questions, and you know what's coming next, more questions and have those conversations. Do you know because how they decided to go about having the conversations and answering questions and not putting people down, not putting the city council down, do you know there are people that go to our church just because of that? 
Some of our next door neighbors said, you know what? Even how they put up with my own resistance to this building program, there's something different about that church. I need to go hear about that Jesus guy. That needs to be our goal. What an example. That's a huge praise to many of you for, for being patient, for continuing to support. And so how do we love our neighbors with whom we disagree? First, we need to look up. We need to, we need to look up. I mean, meaning look at our example. If we love the Lord our God with all, everything inside of us, everything that we are, that means we're, he is our example. That means we're gonna see our great example who is Jesus and how he acted when he was in disagreement and try to place it into our lives. And so we're gonna see that in Philippians chapter two, starting verse five. You can look at there with me. It says this. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what do we see from our great example, Jesus? We saw first, he didn't take advantage of the position he was in, which, what was his position? He was God. And he lowers himself. He didn't hold on to it, he didn't grasp it, or another way, he didn't take advantage of it. He comes to our level and he becomes obedient to the point of death, which means he loses everything materially in this life. I mean, Christ was our neighbor. Christ was the loving neighbor we were not. And so the character trait that we see in this, that we all should emulate, is this. Humility. We all should approach our neighbors, especially those that we disagree, with humility or meekness. Augustine, um, one of the top theologians in which we get, especially our doctrine on grace from, he says it like this. He says, the top three essential virtues for a Christian are humility, humility, and humility. That's pretty clear. To have real love for our neighbor as yourself in disagreement, we have to be humble. Now, I'm not talking about like fake humility, like, I could be wrong, but I'm not. Or the common perception of humility or meekness as weakness. I mean, if anything, we have the tendency or sometimes uh, the temptation to think too highly of ourselves. To, to, and I include myself in this, that I go, you know what? I've followed all the rules. I've tithed. I've given my money to the local church and to what God's doing. I've helped others. I've taught Bible studies. I mean, literally, the church would not run without me. I am super duper really important. Yo muy muy importante. Right? We, we can fall into that trap. But this humility that we, are, we have because of Christ is anchored in the significance of Christ's sacrifice because of what he has extended to us. This isn't weakness, this is strength because Christ has given to us graciously and abundantly and lavishly. And because of that, we're able to be humble. 
I mean, so what does this real, unselfish humility look like? Well, let's get back to our Bibles. Um, go back in Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 2. Here's what it says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interest, his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves. Now, I don't know what your reaction is when you hear that or read it, but when I read it, I go, whoa, I never could do that. How are we supposed to? I mean, just look at some of these things. We're supposed to have the same mind within the church. We're, we're getting on the same page, which takes work and patience. We are to have the same love, which is Jesus. We're supposed to count others more significant than ourselves. We're to do nothing from selfish um, ambition. We're to look to the interests of others, not our own. Basically, we're supposed to take ourselves out of the picture. And that is how we display Christ. I mean, if, we're, if Christ isn't our example, can you think of one other example, earthly example? It's kind of hard, right? I mean, it's like, Mother Teresa, right? Because our culture, we don't lift up the humble, right? We lift up the proud, the strong, the victorious, those with the greatest prestige, the most success, the biggest houses, the biggest bank accounts. That's who we lift up, not the humble. And I promise your ego, it's going to take a hit if we live like Jesus. Many times you're not going to get your way. You're going to feel trampled on. You're going to be taken advantage of. Others might even see you as weak. And in a worldly material sense, you might lose. But to disagree and to maintain, to have Jesus on full display, we're going to have to lose a number of things. We're going to have to lose our pride. Right? You can't be humble like Jesus and prideful at the same time. It's impossible. We're going to have to lose our timing. Right? God's timing is very rarely our timing. I mean, just look at our building project. And then lastly, you're going to have to lose the debate. You can't come into situations going to debate someone into heaven. That, I've never seen that work. I mean, you might still be going, I'm going to lose out. I'm not going to get what I deserve if I do this. And I would agree with you. You're not. If you look at what Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So those that are humble are going to be given the earth. You're going to be given far more than you deserve if we emulate Christ in this way. So when we are marked by Christ's humility in conflict, but also in every aspect, we show Christ. We display him for all his glory. So how do we do this? When when actually the rubber meets the road, how do we put this into action? Well, I call this work out how it plays out. Because none of us do this perfectly. It's a, it's a struggle. If anything, none of us could do it on our own perfectly because it's a Holy Spirit-empowered endeavor and we have the rest of our lives to get better at it, to practice it, to practice it on each other before we even leave this place and so we're going to be talking about just several ways in which we can be agreeable 
while being disagreeable, how we can love our neighbors even when we don't see eye to eye. And so first, we need to start seeing people that we disagree with as real people. We need to see them as the people that are created in the image of God truly are. See, it's easy when we get into a disagreement with someone to solely focus on the agreement and quickly forget that it's another person on the other side. I mean, just look at how people are willing to type up all horrific things about another person that they would never be caught saying face to face. I saw another example of this a few years ago when I led a mission trip to the Philippines. We get out of the airport and we get into the car and everyone in the van almost had a heart attack how people are driving. Horns are honking, people are missing other cars by about this much. Everyone's got somewhere to be and they're driving on sidewalks and, and then the rest of the trip, the locals were just some of the most loving, hospitable, caring people that you'd ever meet. And so I asked the missionary, I said, what's, what's going on here? Because there seems to be a disconnect. And she says, you know what it is? When you, in our culture, when you get behind the wheel of a car, you forget it's another person in the other cars. And we can do the same thing in disagreement. And so we need to start seeing other people as image bearers of God. Second, we need to view disagreements less like something to be won and something more to be discovered. We need to stop coming into disagreements as, as boxing or sparring matches in which we're just blocking every other attack and then, and then we have times thinking about when we should, we should attack ourselves. Most of the time, everyone just leaves bruised and bloodied and nothing gets accomplished. We need, we need to see disagreements as invitations to humbly walk alongside someone to go on a spiritual journey. I mean, with this view, think about it. What, what changes? It becomes me versus you to, to we. How do we discover what God's will, his plans, his desires, his promises for us are? And so we're being invited to adventure who God is with someone else, even though we don't see eye to eye. Next, we need to be okay with not seeing everything as black and white. What I mean by that is as we try to live our lives according to God's word, as we move forward in our culture that there are many more questions that aren't, they don't seem to be black and white that are being raised up. Even if we know the answer, sometimes we need to be okay to adventure with those people to go into areas in which we would never go before because that's what shows true love, to talk it out, to ask good questions. I mean, it's kind of like with my wife, right? I have very long legs compared to her. It's kind of like a Chihuahua and a Great Dane walking alongside each other. And so I have to be intentional to slow down my pace because I love her. I want to walk with her. I don't want to, you know, 10 seconds go by and then go, where is she? And she's, you know, 10 feet back. And so I've had to work on it. So out of love, I have changed my pace to walk alongside her, not in front of her. And with that changed pace, I walk into many department stores I would never go into. <laughs> All out of love for my wife. And as we see things not as black and white, we're going to go at different paces than we would choose. We're going to go to different places than we would never choose ourselves. And we're going to have discussions which is going to be helping our neighbors to see Christ's glory displayed. 
And so we need to be okay that not everything is black and white because we're just co-strugglers. None of us have this figured out. We're just beggars helping other beggars find the free bread. Next, with this, as you're going into different places and spaces, we need to bathe it in prayer. We need to be begging God for his wisdom because we're not going to have the answers. We're not going to know exactly what to do, when to do it, what to say in the perfect moment. And just like Jesus talks about, we need to be not only loving our enemies, but we need to be what? Praying for them. Praying for us. Praying for our interactions with them. That they would display Christ in all of his glory and splendor and majesty and what he has done for us on the cross in our interactions. And to have a great intentional prayer life we need to be intentionally listening. We need to, like it says in James 1.19, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to see the other perspectives. Quick to hear what they have to say. We, we don't really know how to listen if you, if you pay attention to it. We really were thinking about what we're going to say next. And in disagreement, that's just heightened, right? Because they're saying something we don't agree with and we're just saying, what, what's the counterpoint to what they're talking about? And so we need to be better intentional listeners. And because you're so great at listening, you need to ask them thoughtful questions. Follow up to what they just said. Don't just say your point, blurt it out. No, follow up with intentional questions. Jesus did this all throughout his ministry. I mean, look what he did with the lawyer back in Luke chapter 10, right? I think he asked three questions even well before he got to his story. Next, we need to have empathy with others, which what I mean by that is understanding someone's perspective, feelings, and motives. Having empathy with someone is different than agreeing with them, but it takes time and effort and energy to have empathy with them. Uh, a man named Chris Voss, he was the former CIA head of internal hostage division talks about how empathy was one of his strongest tools in getting uh, someone who's kidnapped back. Because if he could understand the perspective, have empathy for the kidnapper, what they truly want, what they truly desired, how they were feeling, many times they would just return the person that's kidnapped solely because someone was there to listen and truly got where they were coming from. He could state it better than the kidnapper himself. And as Christians, this is a huge tool that we have underplayed drastically, is having empathy with those that we disagree with. Then we need to find a common interest. We see Paul as he's preaching in Acts chapter 17 to the Greeks. He, he fully disagrees with, what they, with, with their belief system, but he finds where they have a common interest. If you read it, he comes in and the first thing he says is, I see that you are religious people. And then he finds the one altar in which has an unnamed God. And he says, I know the God that belongs right on that altar. And let me tell you about him. And so he finds that common interest. And so they're willing to listen because they have a common interest. And then lastly, when we do speak, when it is our turn, let's have our speech be seasoned with salt, as Paul talks about in Colossians. Not salty speech, seasoned with salt. Help it to be flavored in the aromas of Christ, with that love of Christ that he had for us while he put himself on the cross, as we are sharing that with others. 
And this isn't an exhaustive list. There are more things, but just imagine if all of us were trying to put these things into place, how it would change our church, how it would change our community, how when people who don't even attend South Shores hears about South Shores, what they would think about us. Think about that guy they worship, that, that guy, what's his name, Jesus? Man, there must be something about him because everyone I meet from South Shores, we might not see eye to eye, but they treat me with respect, they hear me out, they listen for me, and they, and they remember my name, and they ask great questions. Just imagine for a minute what that would be like and how we would display Christ even in our interactions with our neighbors, our friends, and coworkers. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for South Shores Church. I pray for this group of people that we will be ones marked by Christ, that we will display his glory as we love our neighbors, as we love ourselves. That as we go about loving those that we even disagree with, Lord, help us to do it well. Help us to grow up in our understanding that even in conflict, we can display Jesus, that he can be known, that we can be the salt and light of the earth. And Lord, as, as we have been convicted this morning, just continue to draw us closer to yourself. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.